pretty sure musos hate it when you still left stand and then mess up their music, but there's no music here. And Rachel's my friend, so it's, it's, it's okay. A <laughs> um, couple of things. One, I'm being a bit naughty. I did remember that you use the ESV. Oh. <laughs> but I'm going to use the NIV. Yeah. Oh, is there like a little bit of a thing going on there? <laughs> oh. Sorry. Sorry. You, know what I, you want to know the real reason why I actually brought an ESV to use? And the real reason is I've got a new Bible because it's got bigger font. <laughs> so when I went to look at my ESV this morning, I went, mm. um, otherwise I'll have to put my glasses on like on and off like an old man. I don't want to do that. So sorry to play into the, something that's going on here. <laughs> the slight mutiny it sounds like. But I use my ESV regularly. Um, I use it a lot <laughs> for my devotions. I have, I have four ESV Bibles, a journaling Bible, the ESV study Bible, um, a standard kind of pew Bible. And the best one is, so you should write this down, the Gospel Transformation Bible. Does anyone own that? Like, I think it's one of the best Bibles out there. Um, and unlike the ESV study Bible, which has kind of got notes on the passage, which are excellent, the idea of the Gospel Transformation Bible is to kind of do the biblical theology thing for each passage. That, that is, how, how does this passage fit into the whole story of the Bible? So it does all that hard work for you. And so I actually go to that Bible a lot, especially when I'm preparing sermons. So the Gospel Transformation Bible. There you go. I don't get any money for that. <laughs> Probably should. I don't even get it. Maybe an extra bonus from Gav. You know, just a, <laughs> but I have to say also that my favourite Christian author, or one of them out of two, um, not that I only ever read two authors, but is a guy called J.O. Packer. And my favourite Christian book is Knowing God. Um, this is my kind of first edition copy that the elders of my previous church put together for me and gave as a gift. Um, so it's very special. And as I came to think about adoption, I went to my old friend, and he has the best chapter in any book uh, in all the world, I've read all of them, um, on adoption. And so I've lent heavily on that chapter. So if you haven't read this book and you're going to go and buy it just because I said it's good, um, you'll notice that's the case. So that's, I'm being unapologetic about that. Um, so yeah, we'll be... We'll be dabbling into that. But all that said, let's get into it. It's very natural, and as I was talking to my friends about what I'm doing this weekend, that is my cycling mates, <laughs> I said, what are you doing on the weekend? Half of them are probably going to Italy or something for the weekend, <laughs> or wine tasting somewhere. Um, I said, I'm going on a weekend away with a, with a church, and I'm giving four talks. And they said, what are you giving talks? And I said, adoption. And they instantly think, like you might, um, you think of adopting a child. Um, and I said, no, I'm talking about the main metaphor that we use as Christians to understand our relationship with God. But as you think about adoption, of course you think about people who you may know who have adopted children. And you just so highly esteem people like that, don't you? Because it's just such an awesome... Um, powerful, 
picture of sacrifice in so many things. So as I think thought about this topic, I thought I, I want to talk to some people I know who have adopted or have been adopted. And so one couple, uh, Nat and John Brinton, some of you might know, they've, they've adopted two children, friends of, friends of ours. And I was struck by a Facebook post that she put up recently. Um, and so I asked if I could share that. And then I asked her a, second, a question about um, how adopting children had helped her understand her relationship with God better. And so the first thing I'll share is her Facebook post. It says this. Almost three years ago, we welcomed two little people into our family. They were ours from the very moment. But as of today, 1,089 days later, we are now officially and legally able to call them our children. No words can describe how thankful we are for the blessing of a son and a daughter. They are precious gifts from above, forever loved, forever treasured, forever ours. Adopt, happy Adoption Day, Callum and Alyssa. I mean, just as a, maybe I'm a softy, but just as you hear that, it does move you, doesn't it? If it doesn't, we need to pray. <laughs> and so it, this is the answer to her question that, that I asked her about how this helped her in her relationship with God. She said, yes, definitely. Adopting has really changed the way I view my relationship with God and deepened it in a way I could have never imagined. Uh, parenting is hard work regardless, but adopting is a whole uh, other ball game. The early months and years of welcoming Callum and Alyssa into our family were very difficult. The main thing that kept us going was that God never gave up on us and loves us as his children, regardless of what we have done, said, or felt towards him. His love is unconditional, and we felt compelled to love our children in the same way. It wasn't easy which is why I feel I now have a deeper understanding of the relentlessness of God's love for us in adopting and warmly welcoming us into his family. We are not cute, cuddly kids in his eyes, yet he still loves us and accepts us as his own. To see what it means to our children is incredible, particularly Callum, who is old enough to somewhat understand the significance of being adopted to basically be parentless and familyless, and then go to be given the gift of parents and family has changed his life forever. He never knew true love or security before us. He was alone and had to fend for himself. We are made for close and secure relationships. We need family to be loved and accepted no matter what. Last week we got the kids new birth certificates with their new names on them. Uh, Callum decided to stick his above his bed with a post-it note on it that says Callum's birth certificate. Very special to me. To be given a new name and identity means to, so much to him. We know as God's children we're given new identities in Christ and I understand the significance of this even more. To be called a child of God, wow. Nothing else can compare I am his forever, loved forever, accepted forever. You know, at that, this point, I probably don't need to say anything more for the rest of the weekend. And at this point, 
and hopefully this will be something you've struck with for the rest of the weekend. You might be feeling compelled to adopt children. That you might bless them, that somehow your relationship with God might be enriched. Then my friend Andrew, uh, who was adopted, um, and his story is that he was actually abandoned by his mother um, as a baby, just, just left at the entrance of the Royal Brisbane Hospital. Um, at that point, she had six other children and she didn't feel at all like she could look after another one. Um, he was a product of an affair she'd had. And so he was really the inconvenient, unwanted child. Conceived in a way that means he wasn't wanted. And so that was made very clear, left at the hospital door. He was premature and weighed less than one kilogram. And so, you know, physically battling for life and then relationally and everything else that comes with it, battling for life, left at the door. And miraculously, he did live. And he, he said to me, you know, the picture you have uh, of a newborn baby often is a mother holding that baby, isn't it? And apparently now, and I saw someone share this on Facebook, you can have special photo shoots when people come and do the you know, set-up and all sort of stuff. But that's the picture you have. Uh, the picture of Andrew was him just in what he described as a you know, clear plastic box where no one actually picked him up or the nurses did when they kind of had to. And his parents, adoptive parents, came along and adopted him. Um, he said, my initial thoughts are as a child, adoption is in the hands of the adoptive parents. The decision to adopt is theirs. As a child, there is nothing I could do to make myself more attractive to them. They adopt me as I am, not because of what I may become. There's no sign saying, will be a doctor on my head. Adoption is a transition from the worldview, oversight, etc., of my genetic parents to my adoptive ones. It's a realisation that I'm not just the product of my DNA. I've gone from being unwanted, abandoned, rejected, to being wanted, loved, accepted, adopted. Fantastic. It's interesting, in the, in the early first centuries, you may know that uh, unwanted children were just sort of abandoned as well literally thrown on a bit of a rubbish heap. And some of them would be adopted. And people who wanted to adopt children uh, would come along and what they would do would be listen for the babies that had seemingly the loudest, strongest cries if somehow that would be an indicator that they would become something in their life. And so that's how they would choose them. There was apparently this guy, writer in the first century, civilians or something like this, those cool names, um, who wrote a paper on how you could identify <coughs> the best crying babies to adopt. And it wasn't really about the baby, it was about them and what they could get from that baby. Terrible sort of situation. But in adoption, as we've heard, a couple chooses to take a child into their family, plain and simple to give them the privileges and rights of the family, to essentially to rescue and ransom them. 
because if you've heard the story of any parents who have adopted, financially it's always very expensive and very costly, if not tens of thousands of dollars, to give them a new permanent status and identity, to give them security and hope. And so no, no wonder it's something that's so powerful. So Joe Packer in his book says, as Christians, we might think of ourselves as being new, and that is in the idea of regeneration, or we might even think of ourselves as being right with God, which I think often in our sort of Christian world, that's how we think of ourselves, right with God through justification. But he says we don't primarily think of ourselves as God's children, primarily. And that's the idea of adoption. And you think, what difference does it make that we are God's children and not just regenerate and justified? What difference does it make? I'm just going to think about that over the next couple of days. He goes on to say, if, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls, prompts and controls their worship and prayers and their whole outlook on life, it means they do not understand Christianity very well at all. It's not that they don't understand Christianity, they just don't understand it very well. Does that make sense? So what about you? How do you primarily understand yourself as a Christian? Over the last few months I've been asking that question of people. When you think about yourself as a Christian, how do you understand yourself? People gave all sorts of good, right answers. Some even said, a child of God. But actually that wasn't the primary answer people gave. A verse that I want us to have as a verse, and you would say if we were a youth group, and let's pretend we are, and most of you are sort of half my age anyway, so you may as well be in youth group. Um, <laughs> but we're having a memory verse for the weekend. And maybe you could even come up with the best way for us to remember the memory verse. I'm no, not an organiser of the weekend, but let's, let's make that a thing. Faf? Anyway. Um, and the verse is 1 John 3, 1. 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Have you got it open in front of you? We are going to say things out loud together because that will make me think you're paying attention. <laughs> See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Oh, I think I made the comment last time I preached to you guys, I love it when you find part words or phrases in the Bible that just seem redundant. Like, you didn't need to say that. 
But it, like it's one here, isn't it? That is what we are. Well, you just said we are. <laughs> but that is what we are. That is what we are. Children of God. So let's say it together. I don't mind what version you read from. Do it in Greek if you like. We're going to say it out loud together after three. One, two, three. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Let's say out loud, I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. So we're going to turn to the Bible now, and Galatians particularly. And Galatians, you may know, is a letter written to a bunch of Christians who knew the gospel. They knew the reality of being children of God that was only made possible in Jesus and his death and his death alone. Somehow, a group had come into the church and said, well, yes, but it's, it's Jesus plus. You know the letter, don't you? And so Paul comes along so so strongly and calls these Christians fools, you foolish Galatians. I think one of the older translations says, you idiots. And you think, well, you are an idiot if you turn from Jesus and him alone as if somehow you could do something to add to your salvation. Foolish. So Paul writes this letter to recapture their attention, to remind them that it's in Jesus alone that they're children. And so let's turn to Galatians 3. Uh, to the passage that was, that was read. Verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ Jesus or Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What's the dominant word by the mere fact that it's repeated in those word sentences? Christ. Yeah, it's the Sunday school answer. You can always get it. You, you just can never get just even if you're not if you weren't listening. Jesus, <laughs> right? Plain and simple, Jesus. You know, Bruce Linton, who was a kids minister at Gladesville, so some of these guys know him well, he turned up to primary school scripture one week and his little kid, before he even started, put his hand up. Bruce said, well, we haven't even started, what's your question? He said, it's not a question, it's really a comment. Bruce, every time you turn up, every week, week after week, week after week, you know, that's an adult version of what he's saying. <laughs> All you ever talk about is Jesus, 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 Jesus. Bruce said, well, yeah, you've got it. That's it. Paul's saying the same thing. You've got it. Through faith in Christ Jesus. You were baptised into him. Your life. You, you put to death your old life. You've got new life in Christ. I love the words of that song. I think it said, Come and be chainless. Come and be fearless. That's only possible in Jesus, isn't it? And it's in Jesus and him alone. You've been clothed with Christ. And not some of your own little clothing as well. That messes up the picture. It's in Christ and in Christ alone that you are a child of God. So firstly, you are children of God. Actually, he says sons of God. Which, sorry, you know, 
I know there's many females here, lots. Some, it takes a bit of work to think of yourself as a son of God, isn't it? And what did you say? It, it's not actually enough just to say children of God. He wants to say sons of God because sons were the ones who had the full rights and full inheritance. And rather than actually being offensive, he's actually being subversive, countercultural, that male or female can have the same standing with God which females didn't have in that culture. So Paul comes along with his sweeping, powerful gospel good news and says, this can be true for you, whoever you are, male and female, sons of God, full inheritance, full acceptance, full rights, full identity. I mean, as blokes, we have to think of ourselves as being the bride of Christ, so it can be just as awkward. <laughs> but don't don't lose the significance of that technical expression, if you like. And notice he says we're all one in Christ, no race, no class, no gender. It's not as though you're no longer, you know, in classes uh, or in gender or in race. They still exist. But in those things that where you might actually find your identity and your distinction from others, for good or bad, he said, there's a greater thing now that trumps all those things. And so you're bound together because of that. You're all one in that. Because you've been welcomed to the table by Jesus. I growing up, I grew up in the Salvation Army, which is fantastic because I think like lots of other churches, they just have this way of reaching people from all, you know, you might say walks of life. And it's so it meant that I interact with people that I wouldn't have otherwise interacted with and had in my life, especially as what I call myself a silver spooner boy from a private school in the Northern Beaches. Tragic. <laughs> and my parents drove over to church in Petersham, believe it or not, from Collaroy. Long way, but gee, it was worth it for me. And it actually meant that for, for I don't know how long, but on and off for a probably a few years, we had this bloke who used to come and live with us who was part of the church. His name was Andrew. Um, Andrew was the first person I actually knew who had tattoos. Uh, I, mean, I don't mean small, you know, fake stick and poke tattoos. I mean, he knew the guys who were the artists at the King's Cross tattoo shop back in the day. I'm talking late 80s, early 90s, probably mid-80s. And so, you know, he had full sleeves and on his back, they were doing a full um, Pegasus. It's just amazing. And so he had the outline. He was, anyway, I'm getting distracted, aren't I? <laughs> but, you know, he was actually someone who was um, addicted to heroin for a while, uh, someone who uh, had spent some time in jail. I don't know what he was doing living with us because we were, you know, were so far from that. But somehow he ended up living with us. Um, he was like, he's still the toughest person I've ever known. He was really clever with cars. And I remember one day when I was a teenager downstairs just watching him, because I'm useless with that stuff, just watching him. And he was actually putting the motor of a car into the car. Like, who can do that? <laughs> and he had one of these sort of like mini crane things. And he was lowering into the car, the, the whole motor. And it somehow, it slipped and dropped onto his hand. Boom! 
and sat there and he jacked it up. He didn't even swear. I mean, I think I would have. <laughs> uh, they even knew swear words then. And he went, oh, and his hand, it wasn't broken, it was just kind of all dented and just. He said, oh, that, that hurt. Just back into it. <laughs> oh, I felt like I was crying inside. He was just so tough, but somehow he always found himself going to church and at our table, in our family. I mean, a picture of love for me, my dad used to get up for one period you know, of his life for a couple of months and drive Andrew to the ferry at five o'clock in the morning so Andrew could get to work. Uh, Andrew would come and have meals with us. We'd try and give him birthday presents if we could find out his birthday. He was always being studious about that. Um, but I remember one time at the meal table, um, my mum served up some dessert. Andrew's hugging into it. I was sitting across from him. And uh, he was in this jail in Melbourne called Pentridge um, back in the day. And he was eating away and he looked up and said to my mum, this is nearly as good as Pentridge food. <laughs> Which I think he thought was a compliment. <laughs> I'm not sure my mum <laughs> but it was a picture for me uh, of my parents just welcoming someone to the table and it wasn't just a meal it was okay we have to be here but they gave their lives to this and Jesus he's brought us to the table God the Father has through his son and he's not tolerated us we'll think about that more later on He's brought, he's brought us to the table because he's given his life for us. It hasn't cost him tens of thousands of dollars. It cost him his life so that we might be the children of God. We're clothed with Christ. Is that something you ever switch your phone off for, the TV off for, to think about? Clothed. A cycling, you know, I'm, I'm a cyclist. It's, a, it's one of the sort of ever-increasing dominating sports. And if you're not a cyclist, all you do is get annoyed by cyclists on the road. So you're a cyclist or are you annoyed with cyclists? Only two things. But the thing about cyclists, they like pretending they're in clubs like other people who have other clubs. <laughs> but they go a step further and they always, well, most often, certainly true of the group I'm with, we make our own nice little kits, cycling kits, clothing. Um... And the guy that organised the group I'm a part of, he has a cafe and bike shop, so we're, just, we're branded <laughs> with his brand and some other guys who want to get their brand out there. Bar Cycle, it's called. And it's sort of like you feel like you're in or out and you're not really in until you've got a kit, until you're clothed in the kit. In fact, I suspect because they thought I might have been a poor pastor, they were, they were giving me... A, there's a period of time that you can go without having the kit. I think my period of time was kind of stretched out but eventually, they might even just happen to give me one. I'm not sure. But something about being identified with the group when you're clothed in the kit. Uh, hopefully, you're not picturing men in lycra. You are now if you weren't before. <laughs> I think someone called it latex to me the other day. <laughs> no, I, I, don't, I don't wear latex. But we're identified. That was bad, wasn't it? Okay, come back, come back. Switch off. Back to clothed in Christ. 
We have all sorts of markers as Christians, isn't it? I mean, I, I wonder what people would think if they just came here and we said, look, you've just got to sit with us and tell us what identifies us as Christians. But it's the unseen, isn't it? It's the most important thing. The unseen reality that we're clothed in Christ. We're wrapped in his good works for us. We're wrapped in his righteousness. So when God sees us, he sees Jesus. See yourself. See yourself as being adopted. A child of God. Do you live as a fearful slave, as Paul talks about here, or a secure son or child? And faith in Christ brings you into the family of God. So secondly, firstly, we're children of God. Secondly, that means we're no longer slaves, but redeemed sons. No longer slaves, but redeemed sons. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. What I'm saying is this, that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. So you're underage, you don't have access to the inheritance. It's like, I might as well be a slave. He never has access to the inheritance of the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, were slaves under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. We were this, and in Christ, and God's action made the difference. We're this. And slaves, God's action made the difference. He sent his son. All the activity, he did. He sent his son. All the qualifications that were required from us to go from slaves to sons, all the qualifications weren't in us, they were in Jesus. And so he outlines them there. He was fully qualified. Paul lists his qualifications. Sent by God, born of a woman, so he's a man, so he could redeem men or people. He kept the law, so he could redeem the lawbreakers, you and us. We were slaves. You might say slaves to what? We were slaves to sin. Because we're lawbreakers. You might think you're free when you're doing everything you want, but you're not. You're in slavery. Slave to your own sin. God did all the action. Jesus had all the qualifications. In the movies you watch, um, I think it's right saying, are determined by sort of the age and stage you are, and if you're a dad, the age and stage and sex of the kids you have. So you have three daughters, what does that mean for my movie watching? <laughs> well, now I might have a choice, but back in the day, dad come and watch a movie, sometimes that still happens. And so, of course, Annie <laughs> was the movie that I might have had to watch. You know, you're probably singing the song. I know all you'd like started singing the song. It's a hard knocks life. Yes. All right. I won't sing it. So Annie's the orphan and she's made with other, the other orphans in the orphanage to endlessly clean 
just so they're put to work and have something to do and kind of keep out of the way of the horrible person who's meant to be overseeing them and caring for them. Um, but she's taken by Mr. Warbucks, I think that's right, isn't it? He's the kind of billionaire um, to his billionaire mansion. And she's taken into the mansion and asked, you know, Annie, what would you like to do first? And Annie answers in a way that seems to indicate that she thinks she's still in the orphanage and has to clean. And she, you know, probably indicates a room. Okay, that I'll have to start cleaning. But she's not an orphan anymore. She was an orphan, and so that would mean endless cleaning, but she's not. She's free from that, so she, now she can live life and even have fun. And so it's true for us. We're no longer slaves, orphans lawbreakers, we're free. Free from that. As we've got a new future with God, clothed in Christ. We're not just redeemed, we're adopted. We're not just justified, we've made, made sons of God. So the gospel has the double miracle. The double miracle of that we're no longer slaves. That would be one thing, wouldn't it? We're no longer under the judgment of God. That would be great news. We're no longer held captive. We're no longer dead. That would be good if we're free of all those things, but we're not just free of all those things. It's not that those things aren't true of us anymore. It's more than that, isn't it? It's a double miracle that somehow we're justified. And so God says... You know, it's not just as if you never sinned, but actually it's just as if you've always obeyed. Perfect. It's not as though you're just free, you've been set free and ransomed. Actually, you're free to live for God. Not just you're a slave, but actually you're a child of God. You've been put in the house. Set loose to enjoy all that now. It's a fresh picture and vision of life. One of the things I think we've lost is our imagination. Our imagination for what it, what it could be and is to be a child of God, an imagination informed by God's word. So we, we dream and imagine, okay, I'm a child, what is that going to mean for me? And actually to dwell on that, to pray towards that, to draw on the well of the Spirit inside you, to then execute that. This is not good news, this is great news. God has done something for you. The great and sad truth is the main perception people have of Christianity is that God just wants something from you. And what this passage is saying is God wants something for you so much that he's done something. The greatest sacrifice ever, giving his son. He wants something for you. He wants for you to be his child and adopted into his family. And if you're unclear about that, You've missed the point of Christianity. At the centre of that story is the fact that he sent his son Jesus to die for you. 
for you. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Before it's a message of response and something from you, it's a message firstly and primarily and that God's for you and wants something for you. That's good news, isn't it? Jonah Packer in his, his book, uh, Knowing God, says there's six things he says to himself or that we should say to ourselves as well to keep reminding ourselves of who we are every day, standing at the bus stop, driving in your car, wherever you have a moment. Do we have those anymore? Those moments where you just clear everything or just fixated? <laughs> he says these are six things. I'm a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day closer. My saviour is my brother. Every believer is my brother as well. And you know what I'm going to do now, don't you? You're going to say them. Repeat them after me. I'm a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day closer. My saviour is my brother. Every believer is my brother as well. And you could say sister if you wanted to. You know, as you think about it then, if adoption of a child, say Nat and John, adopting their children is a powerful expression of unconditional love that gives rights, privileges, rescue and ransom, permanent status and identity, security and hope, because it is, isn't it? How much more our adoption by God who did not deserve that. How much more powerful should that be for us and a controlling force and reality in our lives? Are you a child of God? Have you clearly and consciously in a head and heartfelt way acknowledged before God that you're a slave to sin, that you needed forgiveness and that you're putting your faith in Christ and what he's done for you so that you know, you know by the conviction of his spirit you've been forgiven that you're a child of God. find your identity in knowing you're a child of God, that in knowing that God is your father, so that you think of yourself in conscious moments in each day, God is my father. You'll be thinking about what it means to be a child of God as you wake up in the morning. Think about the, the mum or dad wakes up in the morning. Well, you don't wake up as a parent, you get woken up. <laughs> I might have been told the other morning as I was still waking up, oh, dad, you had a haircut. <laughs> you look like Tintin. <laughs> 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 ah, fair enough. 
breath. But it's easy as the day rolls, well, the morning doesn't roll on, but it's absolute chaos. You kind of get out the door <laughs> and you just finally snap. You get angry. You, you yell. You say something damaging. someone else, maybe at work, you know, get there at 8.34 and by 8.35 <laughs> you're done in. What would the difference mean in that moment so that you turn from self-condemning and guilt if you understood yourself as a child of God? Or you're, the, you're a worker. Um, and most days aren't like this, I know, but there are those days when you think, yes, I've nailed it. I succeeded. I got through my to-do list. My boss must be really happy with me. Not many of those days, but some days you might have them. You've got the music cranked up in the car on the way home and you're living the self-congratulatory dream. <laughs> what would it mean to kind of reframe how you're thinking about yourself then if you're a child of God? It would change it, wouldn't it? It would change it in a way so that it's not just about how you rethink life, but then how you would act. So the parent mean it would mean you'd go back and say, Look, I'm a child of God, learning what it means to be a child of God, and I make mistakes, I do the wrong thing. And this morning I did the wrong thing and yelled at you. Please forgive. If you're that worker, you're thinking, well, nothing I did was because I did it. It's because God, my Father, was with me by his Spirit helping me that I might honour him in my diligent work. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we, we, that I, child of God and that is what we that is what I am Father thank you so much thank you that we can just sit here in the quietness of this place uninterrupted thank you that you're for us Somehow, in the economies of, of your world, that we have the resources to come to a place like this and wake up and there's food there. Food that we did nothing to make happen or prepare, just for us to enjoy. Even more so, Father, thank you for the fact that it's true that we can be children of God, that we are your children. And again, not because of somehow we've done anything for that, but because you're for us and that you sent your son for us. And 
who is fully qualified to die the death that we deserve to die because we are slaves, lawbreakers, sinners. And by faith in Christ and Christ alone, we can go from being slaves to being sons of God. Father, thank you that you that means you've poured your spirit out into us that we might keep being reminded that you're our father that you've lavished your love on us you've lavished your love on us and that we're children of God and Father we thank you because that is